Admiral Burho, visitors and guests, and Corps of Cadets. It is my privilege tonight to introduce Admiral James N. Loy and welcome him back to the Coast Guard Academy. In April 2005, Admiral Loy was named the inaugural Dr. James S. Tyler Distinguished Chair in Leadership at the Coast Guard Academy. Prior to receiving this honor, Admiral Loy established a record exceeding 40 years of distinguished public service. In 2005, he retired after serving as Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security. He had previously served as the first administrator of the Transportation Security Administration. Admiral Loy retired from the U.S. Coast Guard in 2002, having served as its Commandant since May 1998. Admiral Loy is a career seagoing officer, having served tours aboard six cutters, including command of a patrol boat in combat during the Vietnam War. Admiral Loy graduated with a degree in general engineering from the Coast Guard Academy in 1964 and holds two master's degrees, one from Wesleyan University and one from the University of Rhode Island. Admiral Loy is a native of Altoona, Pennsylvania. I had the opportunity to get to know Admiral Loy last spring in Washington, D.C. I was privileged to have him recount to me the challenges he faced as our commandant on 9-11 and its impact on our service thereafter. He offers us a wealth of experience and is truly one of our most distinguished compatriots in the long blue line. Admiral Loy has profoundly impacted me, and I hope that after our short time together this evening, you leave similarly affected. Please join me in welcoming Admiral James Loy. commander where I don't have to adjust the mic. Yes, and it starts again. Well, this is just a uh, thank you, Jim, for that, uh, for that very nice introduction. And I, uh, I look uh, backward fondly on our little bit of time together. And, and I'm delighted with the responsibilities you've now shouldered as the uh, regimental commander. And, and I'm sure that uh, lots of good things will come from that as you and your class uh, take over the responsibilities for leading the Corps. It's great to be back at the Academy. Uh, it's always great to be back at the Academy in these familiar confines of Leamy Hall. I was telling uh, Lieutenant Smith earlier today that uh, these mass lectures required lecture kind of circumstances. In my day as a cadet, we're in an old splinter village wooden barracks-like auditorium that sort of sits now where the new wing, or sit, sat then where the new wing of uh, Chase Hall is being built. And uh, my challenge is, as I know from my experience in those many lectures, is to keep your attention for perhaps uh, 45 minutes or an hour or so, realizing that the call of Chase Hall, the call of fluid mechanics, uh, the call of sleep deprivation are my competition. So let me see if I can get on with that. As I said, I congratulate uh, Jim for his appointment as a regimental commander. Further congratulations to all of you for completing your uh, summer programs, returning for a new chapter in your academic pursuits. Fall is uh, always a time of newness here at the academy. New fall sports program. This year, new commandant of cadets for you guys to train. A, uh, stay with me now. That was an opportunity to laugh a little bit. Uh, a new assistant suit. There you go. Okay. Are you just slow getting it back there, or am I having trouble with delivery already? Uh, 
Uh, a, new, a new assistant superintendent for the superintendent to train, new class of cadets, new wing at Chase Hall, and thankfully for many, fresh starts on the 2008-2009 GPA race at the other end of the day. Uh, a tepid response at best on that. Uh, we've had some great new things happen at the Institute for Leadership as well uh, as we begin the, new, begin the new academic year with you. Most importantly, we have Don Trone. Don, would you stand for a moment? And if the core hasn't been introduced to you by now, they probably should have been in many ways. Don is on board as our new director, and I would like to have you all welcome, Don. Don's a member of the class of 77, and unfortunately, despite the fact that it was an odd year group as opposed to an even year group, uh, <clears throat> see, now we have balance. That's a wonderful thing. Secondly, a very, very successful businessman who, among many other accomplishments, has become known, uh, if you will, as the ethics conscience of Wall Street. And given the last several days, Wall Street may need him desperately over the course of the next few days and weeks. Don's written and published a set of fiduciary standards for the entire industry segment, remains in high demand to share that guidance to companies across America. He's brought great energy and endless ideas to the Institute, and we count ourselves very, very fortunate to have landed him. Two other new faces at the Institute are Angela Munson and Michelle Beale, and together with Lieutenant Jamie Smith, these folks provide a constancy of presence for the Institute here on the Academy grounds that we've never had before. But they've joined this great network that includes Jim Sylvester and John Maxim at the Association, the Alumni Association, as well as Ann Brengel, the new president of the Coast Guard Foundation, to be constantly concerned about and making contributions to the well-being of the Corps. That constant presence also offers uh, a serious addition for the superintendent to task and to gain counsel from when appropriate as he considers the leadership development challenges always present here at the Academy. We certainly thank Admiral Burrow and his Academy staff for their support of our initiatives and for the sharing of his vision, which the Admiral has laid out for all of us here in the Academy family. There's an old aphorism which goes, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. And Admiral Burroughs certainly knows where he and the Academy are going and has very clearly laid out both strategic and sort of immediate tactical direction for us all. And that kind of clarity offers the Institute the guidance we need to make solid contributions to his direction, and we're pledged to do that, sir. Lastly, we offer our annual thanks in absentia to Dr. Jim Tyler. As I said in my address last year, our work at the Institute is about bringing to life Dr. Tyler's vision for complementary leadership development here at the Academy. He challenges us to complement, not displace, the excellent efforts that are already in place. And this annual address is the place I choose to repeat publicly each year our twofold original tasking from Dr. Tyler. Number one, to make cadets realize while they are here to optimize the experience that the Coast Guard Academy truly is a great foundation for life.
life in any respect, life as a Coast Guard officer, life as a citizen. And the second one, to find a way, and I yield to the parents uh, who are in good numbers here with us this evening, to help us find a way to market this extraordinary place to the rest of the parents of America as a prime place to send their sons and daughters for leadership development. I'm very proud of the efforts we've undertaken to make progress in both those areas over these last four years, and I personally repledge annually to Dr. Tyler our dedication to keep the pressure on in both instances. Well, this is also my annual opportunity to just share last year's accomplishments at the Institute quickly. And in the interest of brevity, let me simply list some highlights and invite any and all of you to visit us at the Alumni Building, third floor, for any kind of a lengthy discussion you would like to get engaged in on any of these items or other things that you know we're involved in. First, many cadets and faculty members enjoyed off-campus experiences funded by the Institute and brought lessons back to the Academy and to the Corps. Second, Don Phillips and I had the Architecture of Leadership published by the Naval Institute Press, finally. So when I've been telling you about it and promising it to you for many years, we now actually have it in hand. This book becomes the product, if you will, of the Institute, and the curriculum elements that we develop from here will be based on architecture. I'm very, very proud of the book. I appreciate all the input that we, both Don and I, received from the Academy family as great, great feedback to the many audiences we shared our ideas and concepts with as we wrote the book. And now it is here for us to use, and for all of you as well. We taught an elective course in the spring out of the Institute uh, on leadership and public policy. And Lieutenant Smith and Lieutenant Brewer and I will teach an entrepreneurial leadership course in the spring semester this year. The Tyler trip annually to Washington, D.C. provided 16 cadets with a very unique glimpse behind the scenes of Congress and the Department of Homeland Security in the White House and at Coast Guard headquarters. With Don's leadership, the Institute and the Alumni Association have championed a network of organizations focused on replacing the 44-foot looters in the Coastal Sail Training Program. The Academy Graduates Panel has become an annual event, and this year's panel, again, offered great testimony about that Foundation for Life notion provided for those who attend CGA. Lastly, we extended our outreach to many elements at the Academy and to others interested in leadership development. We've now put on three Coast Guard Field Day experiences for senior executive service students at the Federal Executive Institute in Charlottesville, Virginia, hosting them at our training center in Yorktown. I was personally asked to bring the lessons of architecture to several colleges and universities and to several company boardrooms of Fortune 500 companies as a means to incentivize those audiences to better personal or team development experience. The Training Center at Yorktown also engaged us to help them with leadership curriculum elements. And the Department of Homeland Security has asked me to address their transition planning team and their professional executives 
identified as future department career service leaders. We've actually received royalties checks from the book for the first several months from the Naval Institute Press as a means to begin to build a self-sustaining funding stream for the Institute as well. Well, those are all good things. Those, some of them are great things. And I think enough history. Uh, let's be proud of what we've done, but let's concentrate uh, for a bit on where we are going. These annual addresses are fundamentally designed to offer leadership lessons. This is the fourth one that I've been privileged to do. And we've talked in the past about we the privileged few and a foundation for life, catchphrases that I hoped you would take away and use them to recall what we were trying to get across in those speeches. We examined the link between commitment, one of the dimensions from architecture, and sacrifice, the behavior that's associated with that dimension. We discussed in another speech integrity, another dimension, and expected duty, the behavior that results. And last year, we discussed hard work, that dimension and results, its corresponding behavior. And the logical extension for tonight would be to select another leadership dimension from architecture, examine it carefully, tell you why it's important to be included, and identify the behavior that is expected from a leader who scores a 10 on the scale of that dimension. We still have many to select from. In fact, we have three down and 31 to go. And as much as I love doing this job every year, something tells me I don't have 31 more years on the job. You're supposed to boo right about then, because you really want me there. Thank you because I know you want me back for 31 more consecutive years. But given that that's probably an unrealistic probability, uh, I'm going to suggest this. Having used, and those speeches are available to you all, of course, uh, anytime you would like to refer back to them. So having used commitment and integrity and hard work as examples of how to conceptualize and project uh, recognizable behavior on the part of leaders who are good at any of those dimensions, I'm actually going to leave the other 31 to you. It's also a challenge for Don and the Institute in our curriculum development elements, working on the GOLD program with Bill Kelly at the LDC to shape and fashion any of those lessons that we think would be helpful to the core along the way, and we oblige ourselves to do so. But tonight, I want to do something a little bit differently. I want to dig deeper into why. It's a wonderful word. Why it's so important for us to put in whatever work is necessary to acquire the leadership skills here as cadets at the Coast Guard Academy recognizing that they are specifically those skills and competencies that we need to succeed in our Coast Guard work. I've always maintained that all of us live in a force field. Force field. I'll ask you to hold on to that phrase uh, because that's the takeaway reminder that I'll use at the end of our uh, time together tonight. 
So let me say that again. I've always maintained that each of us lives and works inside a field of forces. Our individual capability to absorb those forces or deflect those forces on occasion can be seen in net as our leadership productivity. Each of you can list forces at work on your personal capability. For example, on one hand, parents' love and affection, and on the other hand, balancing that love and affection are hopes and maybe even expectations. Teachers offer you forces of respect and encouragement, but they invariably balance those with real grades at the end of the semester. Classmates offer you friendship and help, invariably balanced just a little bit by their competitive instinct to maybe outperform you along the way. Your own ambitions and intentions and a constant wondering about whether you really can succeed. Those are all pressures working on us in this force field. And how we cope with all those forces and many others nets out, as I suggested a moment ago, to be our performance in life. And our objective here at the Academy is to try as hard as we can to net you out as positively as we can so that the citizens of this nation are served well by your leadership when it's your turn on watch. These are trying and critical times for our country. The economic news of this past week adds yet another layer of concern to an already highly stressed environment. The popularly held impression is that Washington, D.C. has become a place where decisions of consequence just can't seem to be made. The president's approval rating is 33%. He and his Republican administration seem to be attacked daily by the Democratic Congress, and their approval rating is 12%, which means you know, Americans in general have more respect for used car salesmen than they do for their elected representatives. And I would offer that's not a very good thing. One of the responsibilities of the Congress is simply to pass 13 appropriations bills to fund the government each year. We will be lucky if the 110th Congress can even pass one. The business of government overall, all the branches, is to do the business of and for the people of America. Last year, Washington debated immigration policy for seven months, often in ugly, derisive language. And in the end, not a single element of policy was decided. Where are the John Calhouns? Where are the Daniel Websters? Where are the Lincolns and where are the Lyndon Johnsons? Where are the leaders and where is the leadership that takes these challenges and forces them to closure and decision. I believe these kind of times are the times to re-examine fundamentals. In the best of times and in the worst of times, what are the fundamentals of and about America that leaders can always depend on? What prompted 
our founding fathers to decide what they decided and decide they did. What prompted our founding fathers to decide are the same things that are still there for us as foundation blocks today. And we need to understand and reaffirm our allegiance to each and every one of those. What should resonate for us today as this list of absolutes? Things worth fighting for. Things worth working for every day. Things worth dying for. Three years ago, we took great pride in the performance of our Coast Guard during Katrina. We were immensely proud of Admiral Bob Duncan as a leader who performed so well as a tactical commander in New Orleans. We were proud of every Hilo crew and every boat crew, each with their aircraft commander as a leader, each with their coxswain as a leader responsible for the saving of over 33,000 lives. We were proud of Admiral Allen, who was asked by the President and who walked into chaos and restored a semblance of order and performance. Outstanding results, no injuries, no serious Coast Guard equipment lost. This year, we are again proud of the Coast Guard crews who performed so magnificently just last weekend during Hurricane Ike's run through Texas and the heartland. But sadly, sadly, we also mourn the loss of the crew of Coast Guard 6505, Commander Tom Nelson, Lieutenant Commander Andy Wishmeyer, Petty Officer Dave Skimmon, Petty Officer Joshua Nichols. These two are forces in our force field, pressure to perform, enormous pride on one hand, enormous sorrow on the other. Admiral Allen's all-hands note to the service on the loss of 6505 closed with these two sentences, and I quote, each person grieves in their own way, and I encourage you to keep a weather eye towards the people you live and work with on a daily basis. Thank you for your devotion to the Coast Guard and to each other. To the Coast Guard and to each other. At that great moment of sorrow, these two are elements in our force field. Responsibility for each other and for our service. But note that in this instance I said, our force field. Every one of us lives with forces that work on each of us alone and forces that work on us, the collective. So I ask again, what are these fundamentals that inspire leadership behavior? What is it about America that leaders count on as being worth any sacrifice? To what end did the signers of the Declaration of Independence pledge in that last extraordinary phrase, their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. Well, what if we tried to make a list of those things? What if I challenge you right now that the list should perhaps only have three things on it? That, of course, would be my list. But since I have the mic, I get to make the list. But I would be interesting, interested in 
hearing from you as to what you think ought to be on that list. And I'm more than willing to just pause for a moment, let you think, and then hear you shout out. You don't have to come to a microphone or anything. What are those fundamental building blocks of America that identify America as being unique? And if there's only three of them, what are those things that we are willing to die for? Freedom, absolutely one of the items on my list. Thank you very much. What else is it that is unique to America in the Constitution, in the Declaration, like freedom and extraordinarily important fundamental to who we are and what we are as a people? Opportunity is a great word. Let's hold democracy. Okay. Okay. Quality. Let me give you a little bit of a hint. If you were all lawyers, what would you be telling me? You can't even imagine that, I know, and that's a good thing. But if you were, justice, I heard. And if you will, I think the phrase that captures that for me the best is the rule of law. So, freedom, the rule of law, and one other. What must be there, actually inspired more by our own founding father, Alexander Hamilton, than any of those other founding fathers? What was he fundamentally concerned about? Since every one of you are telling me the same thing, I just can't quite hear it together. So I'll tell you what it is. It's, it's a strong economy. It's an economic foundation that, is allows, that allows us to concentrate on the others as well. Gives us the economic vitality and freedom to be willing and able to concentrate on freedom and the rule of law and make them what they can possibly be. So we, we have a list of three. Now let me offer you two links. First, to recall again that these three fundamental notions are what defines America and that they are the things we hold most dear. They too are forces in our field. They are our obligations in our generation to sustain American freedom, to sustain the rule of law, to sustain a strong economy. There are things we've watched Americans fight and die for through history. Not just soldiers and sailors. Americans in jeans and t-shirts. Americans on marches. Americans in courtrooms. Americans on the floor of the stock exchange. And second, I selected three because I really want to come back next year. Three gets me away from 31 and toward a reasonable expectation of return. So tonight I want to pick one, and the one that I've selected is freedom. Freedom is just such a fundamentally crucial part of what has made America great now for 232 years. Freedom is why we work so hard to arm you, to be the leaders and caretakers for your generation. So let's think a bit more about freedom.
The Random House College Edition says freedom is the, quote, state of being free or at liberty rather than in confinement or under physical restraint. Close quotes. And there are 12 other definitions for this concept called freedom. And my favorite may be, freedom is the right to enjoy all the privileges or special rights of membership in a community. Let me say that again. Freedom is the right to enjoy all the privileges or special rights of membership in a community. Juxtapose that with the constitutional fabric, with the Bill of Rights, with the things we see in there, because that's the listing that they're talking about. Let me offer a couple of insights to help us reignite what I think must be a constant passion for freedom. My wife and I traveled with friends to Scotland this summer, and as I usually do before such an adventure, I read a bit of Scottish history and became enamored with the story of William Wallace, the great 13th century Scottish hero who was born the landless second son of an obscure Scottish knight. Wallace lived as an outlaw, but raised an army of common people and drove an occupying English army out of Scotland. This was an age where men owed allegiance to their feudal lords, who in turn were constantly fighting among themselves to hold on to their property and wealth. Wallace gave the people a sense of national rather than feudal loyalty and lit the torch of Scottish independence. For almost a year, he was considered the guardian of Scotland. Isn't that an amazing phrase? The guardian of Scotland. And we'll be back to that word before I'm done. But the landed nobles had no taste at all for this low-born champion of the people. They betrayed him to Edward I of England to save their own skins and estates. And he was eventually taken to London, tried in Westminster Hall, convicted as a traitor to the crown that he had never acknowledged. And then tied to the tails of two horses, he was dragged through the streets to his place of execution. He was barbarically hanged and drawn and quartered. And this summer I stood right on the spot in the Great Hall of Westminster where an engraved tile marks the very spot of Wallace's trial. And you may have seen Hollywood's version of this in the movie Braveheart. And it is said that just before the executioner's sword fell, Wallace was given one last chance to swear allegiance to the king. Rather, at the top of his lungs, he screamed one word that had become the purpose in his life. Freedom, he screamed. Freedom. Freedom is the great envelope that holds liberty as well as those elements of the Bill of Rights, including freedom of speech, of the press, of assembly, and the right to bear arms. It contains freedom from things like fear or a release from ties and obligations. It's about civil liberty as opposed to subjection to an arbitrary or despotic government. Freedom is political or national independence. 
the great Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn died last month in early August. And one obituary writer described him as the literary giant of his age in Russia. He was to his time what Pushkin was to the 1820s and what Tolstoy and Dostoevsky were to the second half of the 19th century. He was a writer who most eloquently and effectively spoke truth to power to the Communist Party. His one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich drew heavily on his personal experience in the cruel and mindless world of Stalin's prison camps. And his gulag archipelago documented the stories of hundreds of prisoners in those camps so vividly that the world will never forget them. Their force fields seemingly are beyond our comprehension. And the ultimate irony is that Solzhenitsyn deplored the American way of life. He felt we had far too much freedom and not enough responsible restrictions on our lives. So his life and writing suggest perhaps we need an adjective like responsible in front of this freedom concept we hold so dear. George Will, one of our country's premier political journalists, suggests America is the foremost upholder of the idea of liberty. The idea of liberty. Just a moment ago, we included liberty inside the freedom envelope. If so, then understanding the real scope of liberty is very important. And liberty at root is a respect for the dignity of the individual. And this is the essence of America. In the old world of 1776, and in still far too much of the world today, the individual accounted for nothing then and accounts for very little now. America was founded to be the land of the free, where the individual was more important than the state. Life was important, so individuals should be able to pursue happiness pursue their dreams and their values and their visions. And these are things to fight and die for. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What a fascinating phrase. These are things we need a new generation of leaders to internalize, not as academic lessons, but as passionately held commitments. All these forces are the elements of freedom. Such commitment to be responsible for freedom during your turn on watch can be recognized in the great leaders of every generation. Listen to these words from Franklin Roosevelt as he delivered his address to Congress in January of 1941, and I quote, In the future days which we seek to make secure, we look forward to a world founded upon four essential human freedoms. The first is freedom of speech and expression everywhere in the world. The second is freedom of every person to worship God in his own way everywhere in the world. The third is the freedom from want everywhere in the world. And the fourth is freedom from fear everywhere 
in the world. And later that year at Harvard, FDR said further, we too, born to freedom, believing in freedom, are willing to fight to maintain freedom. We and all others who believe as deeply as we do would rather die on our feet than live on our knees. These are the notions of an American leader before Pearl Harbor. We all know that many Americans in that extraordinary generation actually did die on their feet fighting for freedom. Are you ready to stand up and be counted on your watch? Freedom is a great common denominator to the essence of all that is America. George Will also wrote a column a while back suggesting that change is the promise of history. No doubt he's absolutely correct. And given that change is a given, our capability to embrace, direct, and respond to change becomes a very important dimension of our leaders. The Coast Guard has historically been very good at that. There are countless stories of both tactical and strategic agility and adaptability being demonstrated by our service. It's one of our greatest strengths. Admiral Allen is currently leading one of the most dramatic periods of organizational and functional change in our history. He gets it. He understands the dramatic differences in the Coast Guard's force field and is ensuring the service is properly organized and motivated to keep our service index to America high. What he's not challenging is any of the reasons like freedom we have in place that require such adaptability. They remain as current as the day Jefferson offered the first draft of his declaration. Freedom, the rule of law, a strong economy. Well, given our military character, let me offer one last piece of context behind why I believe it's so important for us to be focused on cultivating leaders of consequence here. I read a column by Paul Greenberg a while back, and I actually couldn't find it again as I prepared these remarks, but I'll not soon forget his thesis. He had overheard a conversation where someone had recently read a book on the Iraq War, and he thought he overheard the person say, 17 lost in one day. It was the worst loss in American history. Greenberg said he surely missed the correct comment or misheard the comment, but that it prompted him to think about which, between war and peace, which is the anomaly and which is normalcy. The misunderstood comment made him think of Bella Wood and Normandy's beaches and the Battle of the Bulge and Iwo Jima and Okinawa and the Tet Offensive and Desert Storm and several hundred thousand soldiers and sailors deployed as we speak. To fail to remember such moments causes one to forget the famous memoir from a Union soldier after the slaughter in front of the wall at, Her at Fredericksburg in 1862. He wrote that evening, I never realized before what war was. I never before felt so horribly since I was born. 
to see man dashed to pieces by shot and torn into shreds by shells during the heat and crash of battle is bad enough, God knows. But to walk alone amongst the slaughtered brave in the still small hours of the night, God grant I may never have to repeat my last night's experience. The ahistorical people think of peace as the normal state rather than as a prize one for a precious and often short time by war. We privileged few cannot miss the terrible irony here as we prepare the leaders of the future. Leaders who are adequately conscious of the past make the best leaders and represent our best chance against the surprise that will otherwise be there. We'd all prefer to be just tourists in history rather than participants. But when you put your hand up here, that option is taken away. That's the luxury that we, the privileged few, simply cannot afford. As military leaders, America counts on us not only to fight the war that comes, but to be part of eliminating the need for war in advance. And such leaders recognize that America's great foundational strengths must be protected every day. And when we forget for a while, we can or even will suffer those surprises. One day thereafter, the forgetting. One very ordinary day, planes crash into tall buildings or zeros come in low and fast over Battleship Row. On June 13th this year, a couple months ago, just an hour down I-95 toward New York, the Coast Guard cut the ribbon on a new sector Long Island Sound command building. The name on the side of the building is Captain Quentin R. Walsh. And I encourage you to read the latest edition of the quarterdeck log, which is the newsletter of the Coast Guard Combat Veterans Association. And in that newsletter, which covers the ribbon-cutting ceremony in New Haven, there's a reprinted report from Captain Walsh covering his exploits in Normandy in 1944. And I challenge you to read that article asking these kind of questions along the way. Does this officer embrace change? Did this officer represent adaptability as a competency? Does this officer have a sense of history? And my guess is that we would all answer those questions with a resounding yes. And my affirmation to you is that during demanding times, the Quentin Walshes and the Bob Duncans step forward to serve. Phew, it seems, it seems that I'm always asking you to absorb some pretty heavy material. And I've always been convinced that we learn a little better, a little more easily, with a bit of a smile on our faces. So let me see if I can lighten up things just for a moment. I've recently come to really begin to enjoy country western music. Oh. 
And I think unlike most of the trendy material being set to music these days, or some claim that it's music these days, I can actually understand the words to country western songs. Some of them really crack me up, and my guess is they will you as well. Listen to a couple of these great titles. If I'd have shot her when I met her, I'd be out of jail by now. <laughs> or, the beer that made Milwaukee famous is making a fool out of me. Or, if my nose was full of money, honey, I'd blow it all on you. And just think what would happen to you if you played your country western songs backwards. If you did that, at the end of the song, now the original beginning of the song, you get your dog back, your truck ends up fixed, you're still married, you're no longer in prison, you're sober, and you can still choose whether or not to buy the gun. Well, how many of you remember the country western song that I asked them to play just after the great performance by the jazz band this evening? It's a tune by Toby Keith called American Soldier. Well, I listened to those words very carefully. And you can bet that I stand ready when the wolf growls at the door. Yeah, I'm solid, I'm steady, I'm true down to the core. I will always do my duty, no matter what the price. I don't want to die for you, but if dying is asked of me, I'll bear that cross with honor, cause freedom don't come free. When liberty's in jeopardy, I will always do what's right. I'm out here on the front lines. Sleep in peace tonight. Not a lot of humor there. Those are the words of passionate commitment. Admiral Allen has asked us all, each and every one of us, to be passionately committed. He recently issued the Guardian ethos as the contract the Coast Guard and its members have with this nation and its citizens. I am America's maritime guardian. I serve the citizens of the United States. I will protect them. I will defend them. I will save them. I am their shield. For them, I am Semper Paratus. I live the Coast Guard core values. I am a guardian. A guardian. In his remarks, at the service honoring the crew of 6505, he suggested that the crew's voices had been terminated so early in life and had been taken us away, taken away from us far too soon. But if they had been there, he suggested, they would have said together, we protected you, we defended you, we saved you, we were your guardian. We've covered a lot of ground tonight, and how do you sum all those things up? 
What is it that we really expect of you? Come on, Admiral, break it down to something I can consume and take away here. Well, we want to remind you to count yourself among the privileged few and to internalize the responsibility that comes with that privilege. And we want to remind you that your four years here provide a very solid foundation for your life, but only if you recognize it now and optimize that time. And we want you to think about this force field concept that I've introduced tonight and internalize the importance of total passionate commitment to what makes America so very special. Freedom being our force of choice tonight. Why do we build leaders at this Coast Guard Academy? Because there is a perpetual handoff in May of each year to the newest infusion of officers in our Coast Guard who will protect and sustain these things like freedom that Americans hold most dear. Thank you for your attention. Good luck as you start another year, and go Bears. Admiral, on behalf of the Corps of Cadets, I want to thank you for being with us tonight. Uh, when you first mentioned freedom as one of your focus points for this evening, the first thing I thought of was Alexander Hamilton's first instructions to the officers of the Revenue Cutter Service when he reminded them to always remember that the American people are a free people. And you need to keep that in mind in all of your conduct and actions, whether it's on the high seas or ashore. And I hope that the Corps takes that message away as well. So thank you very much, Admiral. It's always a privilege to have you at the Coast Guard Academy. Thank you.